Let us define history in its troublesome duplexity as the events or record of the past. Human history is a brief spot in space, and its first lesson is modesty. At any moment, a comet may come too close to the Earth and set our little globe turning topsy-turvy in a hectic course, or choke its men and fleas with fumes or heat, or a fragment of the smiling sun may slip off tangentially, as some think our planet did a few astronomic moments ago, and fall upon us in a wild embrace, ending all grief and pain. History is subject to geology. Every day the sea encroaches somewhere upon the land, or some land upon the sea. Cities disappear under the water, and sunken cathedrals ring their melancholy bells. Mountains rise and fall in the rhythm of emergence and erosion. Rivers swell and flood, or dry up or change their course. Valleys become deserts, and isthmuses become straits. To the geologic eye, all the surface of earth is a fluid form, and man moves upon it as insecurely as Peter walking on the waves to Christ. Those are words from The Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant, and I'm excited to share what I learned from this book, because I think of all the books that I've come across, this short book does the best job of really describing human nature through a variety of lens. And the authors in this, in this book do a masterful job of conveying very dense topics across a wide set of disciplines into a condensed format. You can read this book in a weekend. It's very short. And why I'm excited to read this book and share some of the learnings also is that this book was written over 50 years ago. It was uh, first published in 1968. And some of the backstory is that Will Durant is a historian by trade. So is his wife, Ariel Durant. And before this book was written, The Lessons of History, Will actually worked on this series of books called The Story of Civilization. And in its completion, it was an 11-volume series. And the totality of what he was able to write, what both him and his wife were able to write, spanned over 13,000 pages. So the entirety of the story of civilization is over 13,000 pages, and it covers, I think, it briefly, like, it, or what he attempted to do was rather to cover 5,000 years of human history and got to just shortly after the French Revolution. And he worked on this over the span of 40 years, started in 1935, and then finished the last volume in the year 1975. And then shortly after the 11-volume series were completed, this book, which we're going to learn from, The Lessons of History, examines what are all the key lessons, what are all the key themes that we can learn from, from the study of human history over the span of 5,000 years. And so let's jump in. Continuing further. Climate no longer controls us as severely as Montesquieu and Buckle supposed, but it limits us. Man's ingenuity often overcomes geological handicaps. He can irrigate deserts and air-condition the Sahara. He can level or surmount mountains and terrace the hills with vines. He can build a floating city to cross the ocean or gigantic birds to navigate the sky. But a tornado can ruin in an hour the city that took a century to build. An iceberg can overturn or bisect the floating palace 
and send thousand merrymakers gurgling to the great certainty, let rain become too rare and civilization disappears under sand, as in Central Asia. Let it fall too furiously and civilization will be choked with jungle, as in Central America. Let the thermal average rise by 20 degrees in our thriving zones, and we should probably relapse into lethargic savagery. In a semi-tropical climate, a nation of half a billion souls may breed like ants, but enervating heat may subject it to repeated conquest by warriors from more stimulating habitats. Generations of men establish a growing mastery over the earth, but they are destined to become fossils in its soil. The development of the airplane will again alter the map of civilization. Trade routes will follow less and less the rivers and seas. When sea power finally gives place to air power in transport and war, we shall have seen one of the basic revolutions in history. The influence of geographic factors diminishes as technology grows. Man, not the earth, makes civilization. So that's from chapter, the second chapter in the book. And the way this book is broken up is that Will and Ariel Durant examine human nature through 12 different perspectives. We just heard from the perspective of geography. We'll also hear from biology, race, character, morals, religion, economics, socialism, government, war, growth and decay, and lastly, progress. And we just heard the words of the perspective from geography. Perhaps the most striking perspective that we learned just now is how much air power and the development of air airplane has altered the map of civilization. We don't have to look too far. I think you can just see how in the most recent 200 years, it's no longer important to have access to coastal lines, and the power has shifted from over 150 years ago. Most recently, it was the British Empire, given that they were had the most supreme naval force, to now the trade routes are much more altered. And that's the perspective that Will and Ariel Durant are articulating here, is that the development of the airplane has a major, major influence on how human civilization has progressed in the last 100 plus years. This book, given that it was written over 50 years ago, there's a lot that they weren't able to cover given when they were writing this. But equally, what I thought of there is just how much more the change and sea tide of power has altered given the age of information, the age of the internet. And so there's a lot of connections you and I can make as we learn from this book. So keep that, keep those, not only the themes that are articulated in this book, but I would encourage you and I to think of the right questions to help shape and look at the way civilization will continue to alter going forward. Next up is biology from the book. History is a fragment of biology. The life of man is a portion of the vicissitudes of organisms on land and sea. Sometimes, wandering alone in the woods on a summer day, we hear or see movements of a hundred species of flying, leaping, creeping, crawling, burrowing things. The startled animals scurry away at our coming, the birds scatter, the fish disperse in the brook, 
Suddenly, we perceive to what a perilous minority we belong on this impartial planet, and for a moment, we feel, as these varied denizens clearly do, that we are passing interlopers in their natural habitat. Then, all the chronicles and achievements of man fall humbly into the history and perspective of polymorphous life. All of our economic competition, our strife for mates, our hunger and love and grief and war are akin to seeking, mating, striving, and suffering that hides under these fallen trees or leaves, or in the waters or in the bows. Therefore, the laws of biology are fundamental lessons of history. We are subject to the processes and trials of evolution, to the struggle for existence, and the survival of the fittest to survive. If some of us seem to escape the strife or the trials, it is because our group protects us, but that group itself must meet the tests of survival. So the first biological lesson of history is that life is competition. Competing groups have the qualities of competing individuals. Acquisitiveness, pugnacity, partisanship, pride. Our states, being ourselves multiplied, are what we are. They write our natures in bolder type and do our good and evil on an elephantile scale. We are acquisitive, greedy, and pugnacious because our blood remembers millenniums through which our forebears had to chase and fight and kill in order to survive, and had to eat to their gastric capacity for fear they should not capture another feast. War is a nation's way of eating. So I'm going to pause there. There's a, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack in what I just read. I think, actually, before we proceed, I've read this book a couple times, and this chapter is always surprising to me. Not that these insights are new in any way, but when stated with such plain language and when stated with, in a matter-of-fact manner, there are some uncomfortable truths that we are confronted with, and you'll see what I mean in just a minute as we get into the second biology, biological lesson. But even after reading this a couple times, I am struck by just the brutality that life is, the competitiveness that life is, and when stated what human nature is through the lens of biology, it isn't too hard to imagine why we have the capacity to do horrible things, but also incredible things. So let's push on to the second lesson to unpack that a bit further. The second biological lesson of history is that life is selection. In the competition for food or mates or power, some organisms succeed and some fail. In the struggle for existence, some individuals are better equipped than others to meet the tests of survival. Since nature has not read very carefully the American Declaration of Independence or the French Revolutionary Declaration of the Rights of Man, we are all born unfree and unequal, subject to our physical and physiological heredity and to the customs and traditions of our group. Diversely endowed in health and strength, nature loves difference as the necessary material of selection and evolution. 
Identical twins differ in a hundred ways, and no two peas are alike. Going back to the earlier sentence of, since nature has not read very carefully the American Declaration of Independence, what that's referring to is, you may be familiar with the first couple words of the Declaration of Independence, which states, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what we're learning from how Will and Ariel Durant paint the picture of biology is that nature doesn't care. Nature hasn't deemed all men to be created equal. We're all born among different circumstances with different both uh, physiological as well as psychological characteristics. And it makes us all uniquely different from each other. And tying it to the book, nature loves difference as a necessary material of selection and evolution. And it's through these differences that the book will soon get into, but that, that's these differences that lead to ultimately inequality and difference of capabilities of individuals. And so we'll get into that and why the authors directly contrasted what is commonly regarded as self-evident truths as written in the American Declaration of Independence to what we actually see in, and what the lessons of biology would yield us. Okay, continuing further. Inequality is not only natural and inborn, which is what I was just referring to, it grows with the complexity of civilization. Hereditary inequalities breed social and artificial inequalities. Every invention or discovery is made or seized by the exceptional individual and makes the strong stronger, the weak relatively weaker than before. And that's what I mean by this direct contrast of the self-evident truth that is represented in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal versus what nature actually demonstrates, which is that that's actually not the case and that inequality ends up being natural and, and grows with complexity. Continuing further. Nature smiles at the union of freedom and equality in our utopias. For freedom and equality are sworn and everlasting enemies, and when one prevails, the other dies. Leave men free, and their natural inequalities will multiply almost geometrically, as in England and America in the 19th century under laissez-faire. To check the growth of inequality, liberty must be sacrificed as in Russia after 1917. A society in which all potential abilities are allowed to develop and function will have a survival advantage in the competition of groups. And this is a theme that will come up multiple times throughout the book, which is the dichotomy between inequality and liberty, freedom and security. Next, I want to share with you a definition of intelligence, which I found to be interesting. Much of what we call intelligence is the result of individual education, opportunity, and experience. And there is no evidence that such intellectual acquirements are transmitted in the genes. Even the children of PhDs must be educated and go through their adolescent measles of errors, dogmas, and isms. 
Nor can we say how much potential ability and genius lurk in the chromosomes of the harassed and handicapped poor. So I, I pull that out because what Will and Ariel Durant are saying is that no matter who you are, you still fundamentally have to be educated. You still have to fundamentally go through the process of learning in order to develop intelligence. And if you don't go through that development in the process of adolescence, in the process of education, you aren't inherently going to have that foundational scaffolding to develop the intelligence. And that's really what the authors, Will and Ariel Durant, mean by, that's what they mean when they say that even children of PhDs must be educated and have to make the same mistakes before they uh, get to a point where they can have some semblance of intelligence and, and do something with it. Next up is a chapter on the influence of race on history. I would say the key theme from this, what I learned, is Will and Ariel Durant dispelling the myth that any one race has inherent advantages. And right off the bat, this sentence packs a punch here. History is colorblind and can develop a civilization in any favorable environment under almost any skin. The role of race in history is rather preliminary than creative. Varied stocks entering some locality from diverse directions at diverse times mingle their blood, traditions, and the ways with one another or with the existing population like two diverse pools of genes coming together in sexual reproduction. Such an ethnic mixture may, in the course of centuries, produce a new type, even a new people. So Celts, Romans, Angles, Saxons, Jutes, Danes, and Normans fuse to produce Englishmen. When the new type takes form, its cultural expressions are unique and constitute a new civilization, a new physiognomy, character, language, literature, religion, morality, and art. And this is the most important sentence. It is not the race that makes the civilization. It is the civilization that makes the people. Circumstances geographical, economic, and political create a culture, and the culture creates a human type. The Englishman does not so much make English civilization as it makes him. If it carries it wherever he goes, and dresses for dinner in Timbuktu, it is not that he is creating his civilization there anew, but that he acknowledges even there its mastery over his soul. In the long run, such differences of a traditional type yield to the influence of the environment. Northern people take on the characteristics of southern peoples after living for generations in the tropics, and the grandchildren of peoples coming up from the leisurely south fall into the quicker tempo of movement and mind which they find in the north. Next up is looking at history through the lens of character. This one's quite interesting, so there's a lot to unpack, so let's jump in. Society is founded not on the ideals, but on the nature of man. And the constitution of man rewrites the constitution of states. Wow, that's, that's a bar right there. The constitution of man rewrites the constitutions of states. But what is the constitution of man? We may define human nature as the fundamental tendencies and feelings of mankind. 
the most basic tendencies we shall call in instincts, though we recognize that much doubt has been cast upon their inborn quality. We might describe human nature through the table of character elements given on the following page. So I want to unpack this. So even though this is an audio podcast, I'm going to do my best to summarize the essence of this table because this is a key underpinning artifact from, from this book that helps to unpack a lot of the lessons or a lot of the context behind this chapter. So the way this table's formatted is that you have three columns, instincts, habits, and feelings. And then you have positive and negative attributes of each instinct, of each habit, and of each feeling. And I suppose the way the book or the argument that Will and Ariel paint is that fundamentally human nature is built upon instincts, which then lead to their habits and feelings that we uh, foundationally have. Uh, So let's use one as an example. The instinct of action is positive, is a positive trait, but on the flip side, the negative instinct would be sleep. And then the habits of action and sleep would be uh, play or rest, where play associates with action and rest associates with sleep. And the feelings of buoyancy and fatigue correspondingly are associated with those habits. I don't think I've done the best job of laying out what this visual looks like or what this table looks like. It's kind of hard for me to describe it, but fundamentally, I think the main point to put across is that we have human nature is built upon instincts, which then leads to the appropriate habits and feelings that shape uh, our actions. Okay, moving further on. Means and instrumentalities change. Motives and ends remain the same. To act or rest, to acquire or give, to fight or retreat, to seek association or privacy, to mate or reject, to offer or resent parental care. Nor does human nature alter as between classes. By and large, the poor have the same impulses as the rich, with only less opportunity or skill to implement them. And then, perhaps the most important paragraph from this chapter, Evolution in man during recorded time has been social rather than biological. It has proceeded not only by heritable variations in the species, but mostly by economic, political, intellectual, and moral innovation transmitted to individuals and generation by imitation, custom, or education. That's a lot to unpack. I think what the message that we are learning from that is that evolution through biology takes a long time. Thousands and thousands, if not hundreds and hundreds of thousands and millions of years. And so during the time of man, Homo sapiens, any semblance of evolution that we've had hasn't been through biology, but rather all of the underpinnings of society and civilization that has layered on top of how we conduct our affairs. And so whether that's the economic systems that we participate in, the political systems that govern us, the intellectual and moral frameworks that we adhere to, or the people and customs that we imitate, those are all the things that have shaped and altered the way we conduct our affairs. And it's also through education that we further transmit those same ideas and principles to our kids 
as well as future generations. And that's how we propagate this notion of continuing to advance as a civilization and as a species. But it hasn't been, it hasn't been biology that's fundamentally altered over these past couple thousands of years. And in a lot of ways, I think the key underpinning takeaway from this book is that because it's really our social cues and these layers of systems in place that have changed the way we conduct our affairs, fundamentally, there isn't really all that much separating us humans today from individuals of the past. And so it's easy to feel very distant from the barbaric behavior and the atrocities of the past. But fundamentally, we're very much connected in a lot of the same ways. And it's only because we've propagated, in some ways, better ideas and just like more refined ideas that led to this moral underpinning or this separation, this degree of separation from us of the past. And that's probably what I think the most important takeaway from this book. And we'll continue to explore that through that lens. But I wanted to take a pause there on that. Okay, moving further on from the book. History in the large is the conflict of minorities. The majority applauds the victor and supplies the human material of social experiment. Intellect is therefore a vital force in history, but it can also be a dissolvent and destructive power. Out of every hundred new ideas, 99 or more will probably be inferior to the traditional responses which they propose to replace. And I think this is the most important takeaway. No one man, however brilliant or well-informed, can come in one lifetime to such fullness of understanding as to safely judge and dismiss the customs or institutions of his society. For these are the wisdom of generations after centuries of experiment in the laboratory of history. A youth boiling with hormones will wonder why he should not give full freedom to his sexual desires. And if he is unchecked by custom, morals, or laws, he may ruin his life before he matures sufficiently to understand that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group. So, pausing there, what I am reminded of is most recently I've read a book by Dr. Jordan Peterson and his second book called Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. The very first chapter is actually titled, which I want to pull up here, Do Not Carelessly Denigrate Social Institutions or Creative Achievement. I won't read to you any bits from the chapter. However, I do think that the salient point that Jordan Peterson also makes there is that it's impossible for one individual no matter how intellectually capable or how intelligent one may be, to really understand all the customs, all of the experiments that have led to why certain institutions have formed or why certain customs and, and affairs and why certain way of living is structured in modern day. And so therefore, to take the arrogant view that you can just simply dismantle the existing structures would undermine the centuries of experiments and the wisdom of the collective past. And I think that's also the salient conclusion that Jordan Peterson also reaches in his book, 
which was just written a couple of years ago. So moving further on, I want to read to you this paragraph that this chapter closes on, and I think it had a pretty meaningful influence on how I view politics and how I generally view arguments from the book. So the conservative who resists change is as valuable as the radical who proposes it, perhaps as much more valuable as the roots are more vital than graphs. It is good that new ideas should be heard, for the sake of the few that can be used. But it is also good that new ideas should be compelled to go through the mill of objection, opposition, and contumely. I'm not sure where that word, what that word means. This is the trial heat which innovations must survive before being allowed to enter the human race. It is good that the old should resist the young, and that the young should prod the old. Out of this tension, as out of the strife of the sexes and the classes, comes a creative tensile strength, a stimulated development, a secret and basic unity and movement of the whole. And those are the lessons of history learned through the perspective of character. Next up is us learning about human nature through the lens of morals. But let's first start with the definition of morals from the book. Morals are the rules by which a society exhorts its members and associations to behave consistent with its order, security, and growth. And then we learn about just how morality has changed throughout the ages. Moral cords differ because they adjust themselves to historical and environmental conditions. If we divide economic history into three stages, hunting, agriculture, industry, we may expect that the moral code of one stage will be changed in the next. In the hunting stage, a man had to be ready to chase and fight and kill. When he had caught his prey, he ate to the cubic capacity of his stomach, being uncertain when he might eat again. Insecurity is the mother of greed, as cruelty is the memory, if only in blood, of a time when the test of a survival was the ability to kill. Presumably the, presumably the death rate in men, so often risking their lives in the hunt, was higher than in women. Some men had to take several women, and every man was expected to help women to frequent pregnancy. Pugnacity, brutality, greed, and sexual readiness were the advantages in the struggle for existence. Probably every vice was once a virtue, i.e. quality in making for the survival of the individual, the family, or the group. And this is the most important sentence right here. Man's sins may be the relics of his rise rather than the stigmata of his fall. Further continuing, we may reasonably assume that the new regime demanded new virtues and changed some old virtues into vices. Industriousness became more vital than bravery, regularity and thrift more profitable than violence. Peace more victorious than war. Children were economic assets. Birth control was made immoral. On the farm, the family was the unit of production under the discipline of the father and the seasons, and paternal, and paternal authority had a firm economic base. Each normal son matured soon in the mind and self-support. At 15, he understood the physical tasks of life as well as he would understand them at 40. All that he needed was land, a plow, and a willing arm. 
so he married early, almost as soon as nature wished. He did not fret long under the restraints placed upon premarital relations by the new order of permanent settlements and homes. As for young women, chastity was indispensable, for its loss might bring unprotected motherhood. Monogamy was demanded by the approximate numerical equality of the sexes. For 1,500 years, this agricultural moral code of continence, early marriage, divorceless monogamy, and multiple maternity maintained itself in Christian Europe and its white colonies. It was a stern code which produced some of the strongest characters in history. And then, so further on, we shift from this agricultural code to one of the Industrial Revolution, so we learn from the book. Gradually, then rapidly, and even more widely, the Industrial Revolution changed the economic form and the moral superstructure of European and American life. Men, women, and children left home and family, authority and unity, to work as individuals, individually paid, in factories built to house, not men, but machines. Every decade, the machines multiplied and then became far more complex. Economic maturity came later. Children no longer were economic assets. Marriage was delayed. Premarital continence became more difficult to maintain. The city offered every discouragement to marriage, but it provided every stimulus and facility for sex. Women were emancipated, i.e. industrialized, and contraceptives enabled them to separate intercourse from pregnancy. The authority of father and mother lost its economic base through the growing individualism of industry. The rebellious youth was no longer constrained by the surveillance of the village. He could hide his sins in the protective anonymity of the city crowd. The progress of science raised the authority of the test tube over that of the crossier. Education spread religious doubts. Morality lost more and more of its supernatural supports. The old agricultural moral code began to die. It's worth pointing out that throughout the book, Will and Ariel Durant try to maintain a neutral perspective and are matter-of-fact in their description. And so if it sounds like they are advocating one view over the other, from my vantage point and from how I read the book, they're really trying to paint things matter-factually and wherever possible point us to historical examples of how these transitions have happened to give us clues into how to think about shifting of morals, shifting of even all sorts of views that we've covered and will soon cover, such as economics, as well as progress. But in this case, like one interesting point that they make is that as you shift from one economic stage to another, from hunting to agriculture and agricultural to industrious age, there is a, a level of moral laxity or loss of morals that occurs between these shifting of tides. And we can look to history to help explain how this comes about. So going back to the book. So we cannot be sure that the moral laxity of our times is a herald of decay rather than a painful or delightful transition between a moral code that has lost its agricultural basis and another that our industrial civilization has yet to forge into social order and normality. Meanwhile, history assures us that civilizations decay quite leisurely. 
For 250 years after moral weakening began in Greece with the Sophists, Hellenic civilization continued to produce masterpieces of literature and art. Roman morals began to decay soon after the conquered Greeks passed into Italy around 146 BC, but Rome, con but Rome continued to have great statesmen, philosophers, poets, and artists until the death of Marcus Aurelius. Politically, Rome was at Nadir when Caesar came, yet it did not succumb to the barbarians until 465 AD. May we take as long to fall as did the imperial Rome. Next up is a chapter and a look at human nature through the lens of religion. And right off the bat, I think this is one of the uh, most interesting insights I picked up from this chapter, which is the value of religion is to provide hope in a world where inequality is a natural outcome. So from the book, Since the natural inequality of men dooms many of us to poverty or defeat, some supernatural hope may be the sole alternative to despair. Destroy that hope, and class war is intensified. Heaven and utopia are buckets in a whale. When one goes down, the other goes up. When religion declines, communism grows. There's two other key ideas that I found to be really interesting from this chapter. One we'll start with is just how religion has been prevalent throughout history. And over the long arc of history, there have been many periods in which civilizations have had extreme reliance on religion, as well as a periods where they turn their back on religion. And so let's uh, get to understand that a little bit through the lens of history. One lesson of history is that religion has many lives and a habit of resurrection. How often in the past have God and religion died and been reborn? Ignatian used all the powers of a pharaoh to destroy the religion of Ammon. Within a year of Ignatian's death, the religion of Ammon was restored. Atheism ran wild in the India of Buddha's youth, and Buddha himself founded a religion without a god. After his death, Buddhism developed a complex theology including gods, saints, and hell. Philosophy, science, and education depopulated the Hellenic pantheon, but the vacuum attracted a dozen oriental faiths rich in resurrection myths. And so I am going to further push this on. But I think the main point here is that throughout history, throughout hundreds and thousands of years, there's been periods of reliance on religion, and then there's been periods where the people turn their backs on religion. And this is a this is something that time and time again we see, and this is something that uh, Will and Ariel Durant make the argument that will, religion will always be there as long as there's some level of hopelessness and some level of uh, reason to look for hope. And then the other key lesson or key idea that I want to extract from this chapter is that you need religion in order to maintain some semblance of morality. And that, well, rather than run over my point, let me just read to you from the book. Does history warrant Renan's conclusion that religion is necessary to morality? That a natural ethic is too weak to withstand the savagery that lurks under civilization and emerges in our dreams, crimes, and wars? Joseph de Maistre answered, I do not know what the heart of a rascal may be. I know what is in the heart of an honest man. It is horrible. And this is the most important paragraph right here. 
There is no significant example in history before our time of a society maintaining moral life without the aid of religion. France, the United States, and some other nations have divorced their governments from all churches, but they have the help of religion in keeping social order. Only a few communist states have not merely disassociated themselves from religion, but have repudiated its aid. And perhaps the apparent and provisional success of this experiment in Russia owes much to the temporary acceptance of communism as a religion of the people, replacing the church as the vendor of comfort and hope. And then we end with this. As long as there is poverty, there will be gods. Next is looking at history and human nature through the lens of economics. This is perhaps one of my favorite chapters just because I'm particularly interested in economics, the science of how decisions and allocation of resources. I mean, that's ultimately what economics is, but I think it it's very helpful to understand because that shapes a lot of how and why humans make the decisions that they do. So let's jump in. History, according to Karl Marx, is economics in action. The contest among individuals, groups, classes, and states for food, fuel, materials, and economic power. Political forms, religious institutions, cultural creations are all rooted in economic realities. So the Industrial Revolution brought with it democracy, feminism, birth control, socialism, the decline of religion, the loosening of morals, the liberation of literature from dependence upon aristocratic patronage, the replacement of romanticism by realism and fiction, and the economic interpretation of history. The outstanding personalities in these movements were effects, not causes. The French Revolution came not because Voltaire wrote brilliant satires and Rousseau sentimental romances, but because the middle classes had risen to economic leadership and needed legislative freedom for their enterprise and trade and itched for the social acceptance and political power. Further on. Today, the inability of small farms to use the best machinery profitably is again forcing agriculture into large-scale production under capitalistic or communistic ownership. It was once said that civilization is a parasite on the man with the hoe. But the man with the hoe no longer exists. He is now a hand at the wheel of a tractor or a combine. Agriculture becomes an industry, and soon the farmer must choose between the employee of a capitalist and being an employee of a state. At the other end of the scale, history reports that the men who can manage men manage the men who can manage only things, and the men who can manage money manage all. That's that's quite confusing. The The men who can manage men can only manage thing, and the men who can manage money manage all. I underline that sentence only because it was interesting, but... I think it's just a sort of, even though the book was written in the late 60s, it is foreshadowing the rise and the financialization of the economy, particularly in the uh, Western Hemisphere. And so it's good foreshadowing right there. But nonetheless, I'm still confused by that sentence. You can just think of it as that the, 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 the people that can uh, manage money end up controlling how decisions get made, at present at least. Okay, and then I found this to be interesting as well. Perhaps it is one secret of their power, talking about really powerful families. Having studied the fluctuations of prices, they know that history is inflationary, 
and that money is the last thing a wise man will hoard. So that I pulled out that as a standalone sentence. It really describes some of the most powerful families through history, the Medici, the Rothschilds, the J.P. Morgans, the, the Morgan family, and connecting it to the secret that is that they know, which is that hoarding currency, hoarding money is going to be useless in the long run because over the long run, money gets debased, money gets inflated away. And that's why a lot of these families end up holding their wealth and holding their uh, power through holding it in assets. And that's how they're able to preserve their wealth and, and power through through the ages. Okay, next is another ode to how inequality ends up coming about. We go back to the book. Since practical ability differs from person to person, the majority of such abilities in nearly all societies is gathered in a minority of men. The concentration of wealth is a natural result of this concentration of ability and regularly recurs in history. The rate of concentration varies with the economic freedom permitted by morals and the laws. In progressive societies, the concentration may reach a point where the strength of number in the many poor rivals the strength of the ability in the few rich. Then, the unstable equilibrium generates a critical situation which history has diversely met by legislation distributing wealth or by revolution distributing poverty. So pausing there real quick, what we're learning there is that one, inequality and wealth gap is a result of a distribution of abilities that people have and people with outstanding abilities end up concentrating wealth just because of the um, impact that they're able to have. And so when you have unequal individuals, you have unequal outcomes and wealth inequality ends up being a result of unequal constitution of individuals. And so when that happens throughout history, this has happened numerous and dozens and dozens of times. And what that's led to is where the wealth ends up being redistributed either by taxation through legislation or through some sort of revolution and an overthrowing of power and, and redistribution through violent means. I've watched this really interesting view. I think it's called The Economic Machine. If you look up Ray Dalio's D-A-L-I-O on YouTube and look up a video, it's like a 30-minute video outlining, and it takes a U.S.-centric view, but it does a very nice job of outlining how the economy works. And I've watched this a handful of times, but it's, it's a good one in that it explains a lot of the core concepts that seem like very far out there and that it explains what the role of a central bank is and how legislation plays into the economy and how revolutions happen when there's when wealth inequality gets to a breaking point. Highly recommend watching it because I think it uh, encapsulates the same lessons that we're learning here also. Okay, the chapter ends with, We conclude that the concentration of wealth is natural and inevitable and is periodically alleviated by violent or peaceable partial redistribution. In this view, all economic history is the social heartbeat of the social organism. A vast systole and diastole of concentrating wealth and compulsive recirculation. Which I take to mean that wealth gap has been and will continue to occur in the future.
Next up, we have a view of history through the lens of socialism. I won't spend too much time on this because I think the role of government and war is was far more interesting to me, but there were a couple key salient points I want to pull out. But let's start with the definition of capitalism. The struggle of socialism and capitalism is part of the historic rhythm in the concentration and dispersion of wealth. The capitalist, of course, has fulfilled a creative function in history. He has gathered the savings of people into productive capital by the promise of dividends or interest. Meanwhile, competition compels the capitalist to exhaustive labor and his products to ever-rising excellence. Okay, so that's a brief definition of capitalism. What I found interesting in some of the lessons that Will and Ariel Durant uncover through history is that before reading this book, I didn't know that there had been multiple experiments of socialism throughout history. And in fact, from the, from the book, there have been socialist experiments in a dozen countries and centuries, dating all the way back to 2100 BC. So I want to read to you a couple dates in, in, in history and a couple periods in which there's been socialism in action. So first in Sumeria in 2100 BC, in Babylonia in 1750 BC, in Egypt under the Ptolemies in 320 to 30 BC, under the Roman rule in Egypt, 30 BC, in China in the years of uh, 140 BC, further in China just after the death of Christ between the years of 9 and 23, 1000 China between the years of 1068 and 85, 1085. As you can see, so there's been dozens, and uh, again, in, in Peru in 1533, in South America in uh, the years of between 1620 and 1750, and again after the Industrial Revolution. So the reason I bring this up is because w- before reading this book, I had just naively assumed that the idea of socialism just came about as a direct contrast to the Industrial Revolution, and that the experiments or the way of living that started about after in the early 19th century, that was the first time that socialism had been tried out. But this book sort of illuminated me to the notion that this has always been around and this has always been a thing. The other idea that I picked up was that there are times when communism and socialism ends up thriving. And this is particularly during a uh, time of war in which there is a benefit to centralization until until the natural realities of socialism and communism take root. The times in which it's failed has been due to the inevitable bloat that happens where these state institutions end, ends up getting bloated and as a result, high taxation is the end result, which then the people get dissatisfied and then overthrow the government. Again, I'm not trying to spend too much time on this chapter, but the the main point that I learned was just how prevalent socialism was throughout history. And then lastly, I'll end on this point from the book. The fear of capitalism has compelled socialism to widen freedom, and the fear of socialism has compelled capitalism to increase equality. East is West, and West is East and soon the twain will meet. Next up is looking at history through the lens of government. And we start with this point from the authors. 
Since men love freedom and the freedom of individuals in society requires some regulation of conduct, the first condition of freedom is its limitation. Make it absolute and it dies in chaos. So the prime task of government is to establish order. Organized central force is the sole alternative to incalculable and disruptive force in private hands. Power naturally converges to a center, for it is ineffective when divided, diluted, and spread. Monarchy seems to be the most natural kind of government, since it applies to the group the authority of the father in a family or of the chieftain in a warrior band. If we were to judge the forms of government from their prevalence and duration in history, we should have to give the palm to monarchy. Democracies, by contrast, have been hectic interludes. All in all, monarchy has had a middling record. Its wars of succession brought mankind as much evil as the continuity or legitimacy of the monarchy brought good. When it is hereditary, it is likely to be prolific of stupidity, nepotism, irresponsibility, and extravagance than of nobility or statesmanship. Louis XIV has often been taken as a paragon of modern monarchs, but the people of France rejoiced at his death. And then, perhaps the most important point, the complexity of contemporary states seems to break down any, ingle, any single mind that tries to master it. Hence, most governments have been oligarchies, ruled by a minority, chosen either by birth, as in aristocracies, or by a religious organization, as in theocracies, or by wealth, as in democracies. So pausing there, I think, I think the, this probably again uh, another uncomfortable truth this one felt like a splash of cold water in that revealing that wealth is what rules democracies or democracies are ruled by wealth i didn't i certainly didn't expect that because you think that on surface that it's the people's choice that would ultimately matter but then given that most democracies are ruled by a representative minority wealth certainly does influence how the representative minority ends up conferring and and executing on the views. Okay, I want to pull out this independent point on the role of revolutions in how governments govern and the influence revolutions have. I don't really have a broader point to make other than I think you'll find it interesting. So we'll go back to the book. Since wealth is in an order and procedure of production, an exchange rat. Since wealth is an order and procedure of production and exchange, rather than an accumulation of goods, and is a trust in men and institutions, rather than the intrinsic value of paper money or checks, violent revolutions do not so much redistribute wealth as destroy it. There may be a redivision of the land, but the natural inequality of men soon recreates an inequality of possessions and privileges and raises to power a new minority with essentially the same instincts as in the old. And then another important point, the only real revolution is in the enlightenment of the mind and the improvement of character. The only real emancipation is individual, and the only real revolutionists are philosophers and saints. There's another point I want to bring out, and then we'll close on this chapter on the role and future of democracies. Okay. But first, every advance in the complexity of the economy puts an added premium upon the superior ability and intensifies the concentration of wealth, responsibility, and political power. 
And then next. Democracy has now dedicated itself resolutely to the spread and lengthening of education and to the maintenance of public health. And then here's the important point. If equality of educational opportunity can be established, democracy will be real and justified. For this is the vital truth beneath its catchwords, that though men cannot be equal, their access to education and opportunity can be made more nearly equal. The rights of man are not rights to office and power, but the rights of entry into every avenue that may nourish and test a man's fitness for office and power. A right is not a gift of God or nature, but a privilege which it is good for the group that the individual should have. I think that's a salient point there, which is that unless a democracy can claim to increase the equality of opportunity, then real democracy will, won't stand the test of time because people who are in unfortunate positions will revolt. And that's what I think that's ultimately what Will and Ariel Durant are articulating here that when they say that if equality of educational opportunity can be established, only then will democracy be real and justified. And unless you have that, uh, you can't claim to have full functioning democracy. Next, we evaluate history through the lens of war. And it'll be a short one because so much is captured in just really two paragraphs. But we start with this interesting fact. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Incredible. Continuing. Peace is an unstable equilibrium, which can only be preserved by acknowledged supremacy or equal power. And I am reminded of the concept of mutually assured destruction there, because through the advent of nuclear weapons, the concept of mutually assured destruction is this, is this notion of having equal power, and that's what's led to this period of unstable equilibrium and, and peace. And continuing, the causes of war are the same as the causes of competition among individuals, Acquisitive, acquisitiveness, acquisitiveness, I can't pronounce that word, acquisitiveness, pugnacity, and pride. The desire for food, land, material fuels mastery. The state has our instincts without our restraints. The individual submits to restraints laid upon him by morals and laws and agrees to replace combat with conference because the state guarantees him with basic protection in his life property, and legal rights. The state itself acknowledges no substantial restraints, either because it is strong enough to defy defy any interference with its will, or because there is no super-state to offer it basic protection, and no international law or moral code wielding effective force. I love that sentence right there. The state has our instincts without our restraints. And I think that's a lot of why wars get started in that... All our biological instincts are there within the state, but the restraints aren't unlike small-scale or individual combat or just our behavior as individuals. And then we end with this. A world order will come not by a gentleman's agreement, but through a decisive victory by one of the great powers that it will be able to dictate and enforce international law, as Rome did from Augustus to Aurelius. Such interludes of widespread peace are unnatural and exceptional. They will soon be ended by changes in the distribution of military power. 
You have told us that man is a competitive animal, that his states must be like himself, that the natural selection now operates on an international plane. States will unite in basic cooperation only when they are in common attack from without. Perhaps we are now restlessly moving towards that higher plateau of competition. We may make contact with ambitious species on other planets or stars. Soon thereafter, there will be interplanetary war. Then, and only then, will we of this earth be one. Next up is on how civilizations grow and decay. Going to the book. History repeats itself, but only in outline and in large. We may reasonably expect that in the future, as in the past, some new states will rise, some old states will subside, that new civilizations will begin with pasture and agriculture, expand into commerce and industry, and luxuriate with finance. Himself in the large, because human nature changes with geological leisureliness, and man is equipped to re- respond in stereotyped ways to frequently occurring situations and stimuli like hunger, danger, and sex. But in a developed and complex civilization, individuals are more differentiated and unique than in a primitive society. And many situations contain novel circumstances requiring modifications of instinctive response. Custom recedes, reasoning spreads, and the results are less predictable. There is no certainty that the future will repeat the past. Every year is an adventure. I mentioned in passing before on prior episodes that one of my favorite podcasts is the Founders Podcast which is where I get a lot of inspiration from for this own podcast. And the premise of Founders Podcast is that the host, David Senner, he reads a biography a week of notable entrepreneurs, notable individuals that have started something. And one of the expressions he uses pretty frequently is that history doesn't repeat, human nature does. And even though that's in contrast to what Will and Ariel Durant are saying in this paragraph that history repeats itself, but only in outline and in the large. I think you can really connect those two ideas or those two phrases to be the one and the same, and I'll explain why. So the notion of history doesn't repeat, but human nature does, contrasted with this idea from the book that history repeats itself, but only in outline and in the large. The reason why they're connected in my mind is that it's not so much that history repeats itself and that the same events happen time and time again. It's that human nature is constant. Our biological makeup has been constant, and that doesn't change. It takes millions of years for that to change. And it's for that very reason that human nature is consistent. And even though we've overlaid with customs and overlaid with systems to help us evolve through modern ways, by and large, our software or or hardware in many ways is still the same is is still rooted in primitive makeup and that's ultimately why human nature being constant ends up leading to these same events that happen throughout history or it feels like it's we repeatedly encounter the same events that's also why there's a lot of value in studying history there's a lot of value in studying biographies because if we can understand that human nature is constant we can then underpin and understand and extract ideas from from the lens of history, the lens of biographies, to see how people made decisions under different circumstances. And then over time, 
maybe that'll be useful in our own lives. And that's certainly what I'm also trying to do with this podcast. Okay, moving further on. On one point, all are agreed. Civilizations begin, flourish, decline, and disappear, or linger on as stagnant pools left by one's life-giving streams. What are the causes of development, and what are the causes of decay? If we go further back and ask what determines whether a challenge will or will not be met, the answer is that this depends on the presence of absence of initiative and of creative individuals with clarity of mind and energy of will capable of effective responses to new situations. If we ask what makes a creative individual, we are thrown back from history to psychology and biology, to the influence of environment and the gamble and secret of the chromosomes. In any case, a challenge successfully met, as by the U.S. in 1917, 33, and 1941, if it does not exhaust the victor, like England in 1945, raises the temper and level of a nation, makes it abler to meet further challenges. So there's a lot there that's happening there. But ultimately, I think what uh, Will and Ariel Durant are saying there is that the capacity for a country to meet the challenges that it faces is going to be dependent on the people, people that have the will, capacity for genius, the ability to respond to new situations, which is a function of intelligence. And if you have sufficient number of individuals to lead and step up to these moments, then that's ultimately why nations continue to prosper and why civilizations can continue to prosper. Continuing, when the group or civilization declines, it is through no mystic limitation of a corporate life, but through the failure of its political or intellectual leaders to meet the challenges of change. And then lastly, the chapter ends with, nations die Old regions grow arid or suffer other change. Resilient man picks up his tools and his arts and moves on, taking his memories with him. If education has deepened and broadened those memories, civilization migrates with him and builds somewhere another home. In the new land, he need not begin entirely anew, nor make his way without friendly aid. Communication and transport bind him, as in a nourishing placenta with his mother country. Rome imported Greek civilization and transmitted it to Western Europe. America profited from European civilization and prepares to pass it on with a technique of transmission never equaled before. I think that's even more poignant today, given that this was written before the rise of the internet, and so this idea of transmission of civilization happens at a much, much faster rate. And then a side point, too, is that in some ways it can be depressing to consider the, the end of civilizations, but reading this book and broadly as we study more and more history, it's comforting. It's comforting that, you know, if we can take a stoic view or if we can broaden our time horizon, we get to understand that these things happen time and time again, and that having this understanding sort of, in a way, prepares us mentally or prepares us to the notion that it's just part of life. And there's some comfort in that, in that we've seen this before. Okay, lastly, we will end with a chapter titled, Is Progress Real? And going to the book. But perhaps we should first define what progress means to us. If it means increase in happiness, its case is lost almost at first sight. Our capacity for fretting is endless. And no matter how many difficulties we surmount, how many ideals we realize, we shall always find an excuse for being magnificently miserable. 
There is a stealthy pleasure in rejecting mankind or the universe as unworthy of our approval. It seems silly to define progress in terms that would make the average child a higher, more advanced product of life than the adult or the sage. For certainly the child is the happiest of the three. Is a more objective definition possible? We shall here define progress as the increasing control of the environment by life. It is a test that may hold for the lowliest organism as well as for man. And then they go on to say, the authors go on to say, Our problem is whether the average man has increased his ability to control the conditions of his life. And then a standalone point I want to pull out on whether we've made progress. We have multiplied a hundred times our ability to learn and report the events of the day and the planet. But at times, we envy our ancestors, whose peace was gently disturbed by the news of their village. We have laudably bettered the conditions of life for skilled working men and the middle class, but we have allowed our cities to fester with dark ghettos and slimy slums. We frolic in our emancipation from theology, but have we developed a natural ethic, a moral code independent of religion, strong enough to keep our instincts of acquisition, pugnacity, and sex from debasing our civilization into a mire of greed, crime, and promiscuity? And the last thing I'll end on is the role of education in civilization. If education is the transmission of civilization, we are unquestionably progressing. Civilization is not inherited. It has to be learned and earned by each generation anew. If the transmission should be interrupted for one century, civilization would die, and we should be savages again. So our finest contemporary achievement is our unprecedented expenditure of wealth and toil in the provision of higher education for all. Once, colleges were luxuries, designed for the male half of the leisure class. Today, universities are so numerous that he who runs may become a PhD. We have not excelled the selected geniuses of antiquity, but we have raised the level and average of knowledge beyond any age in history. Consider education not as a painful accumulation of facts and dates, and reigns, nor merely the necessary preparation of the individual to earn his keep in the world, but as the transmission of our mental, moral, technical, and aesthetic heritage as fully as possible to as many as possible, for the enlargement of man's understanding, control, embellishment, and enjoyment of life. And that is where we will end it for today. You've listened to the words of Will and Ariel Durant from The Lessons of History. I love this book. This is one that I know I'll revisit again in the future. I highly recommend it. It's a very short read. It's only 100 pages long, and there's a lot to learn from this book. And perhaps one day I'll even cover the story of civilization, the 11-part, 13-plus-thousand-page look into civilization. That'll be an ambitious one for sure. But for now, if you enjoy what I'm trying to do with this podcast, which is collate wisdom through the ages, pick up all the big ideas, and convey the timeless ideas that you and I can use in our lives. If you enjoy this podcast, if you find it of value, 
there's two ways you can support what I'm trying to do here. One is if you want to read the book, go to the notes within your favorite podcast player and you'll see a link to the book. It'll be an Amazon affiliate link. And if you click on it and purchase the book, at no additional cost to you, you would be indirectly supporting this podcast. Another way, and perhaps probably the most important way, is if you leave a review within your favorite podcast player, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts from, that'll help get the word out to more people. And that certainly is uh, probably the best way you can support the podcast and what I'm trying to do. I put a lot of my time and energy into this, and it would mean a lot if you could leave a review. Thank you so much. And until next time.